Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate Spoiler Special podcast on 127 Hours, the new Danny Boyle movie starring James Franco. And joining me from our DC studio is Dan Coyce. Hey, Dan. Hey, how are you? Critic for the Washington Post, contributor to Slate, occasional contributor to every Literally place, voice everywhere else, under the sun. Yeah. And um, and we saw this movie separately. I have read your review of it. I think that you liked it more than I did, but I wanted to get your general reaction before we get started spoiling. Uh, yeah, I liked it more than you did. It seems like. Um, I uh, so this is the movie as pretty much everyone knows. It, it barely even counts as a spoiler to say this is the one where James Franco cuts his arm off. Yeah, that's going to be how it's treated this weekend. As people are asking their girlfriends out on dates and planning what movie to see, right? They'll be right. all, "You want to see Franco cut his arm off, or what?" Yeah, all right. Nobody's going to know the title, right? Uh, I've been, I in fact uh, in fact while filing my review to the Village Voice, I sent it under the title "127 Days" because I just forgot what its title was. Right, it and, and Danny Boyle made 28 days, so right. whatever. Right. Um, so, anyways, uh, I really liked it a lot. I mean, I, I, I liked it mostly in spite of uh, Danny Boyle at times, although I think he made a lot of choices that I liked better than you liked them. But I liked it mostly because of James Franco, who I think is very well suited to this role and and whose public persona, I think, is played with in this role in, in interesting and fun ways. Um, and it really does, to me, feel like a movie that will make him turn him from a guy who everyone likes to an actual legitimate movie star who opens movies. Yeah, I feel like he's been, to me, has been sort of a movie star in my mind for at least a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I agree, he hasn't really broken big, partly because of the choices he makes, because he chooses movies like this. I mean, this may be a break, breakthrough, crossover kind of movie, but, you know, it's not uh, Spider-Man, which he already appeared in without becoming a household name movie star. Right. And I sort of think that the, st- the strength of James Franco has been, and I hope will continue to be, that he makes these offbeat choices and doesn't take the easy way out. Mm. Well, maybe, maybe Dan, we should do a moment of a, a plot summary for those who don't know the Aaron Ralston story. Sure. So this is based on uh, 127 Hours is based on the real-life story of Aaron Ralston, who is a hiker who uh, – a hiker and canyoneer, an experienced canyoneer who um, was trapped in a slot canyon in Utah um, with his arm pinned – his right arm pinned under a gigantic boulder. Uh, basically, he was – uh, sort of traipsing across the canyon. He and the boulder fell at the same time. He fell a little bit faster than the boulder um, in viol- direct violation of all of Newton's laws, I believe. And um, the boulder landed on top of his arm, um, pinning it. Uh, I mean, it didn't like, it didn't seem to like hurt him substantially when he landed, but it just pinned him so he was stuck. Right. And um, Ralston, played by Franco, um, is stuck under there for five days, five increasingly thirsty, uh, hallucinogenic days. Um, And uh, he thinks back during that time on the mistakes he made leading up to this hike, but sort of more generally on the mistakes he made in his life, uh, a certain shunning of human connection um, and an unwillingness to open himself up to others, a sort of we're given that as his backstory, although it's not made explicit. It's 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 delivered pretty elliptically. Um, and he realizes in the end that sort of his life has led up to this moment, that a life lived in solitude uh, is going to end, he believes, in solitude with him dying alone in a canyon. And so in sort of his last moments of hope, he uh, does indeed cut his own arm off, um, repel down, uh, escape from the canyon, repel down a wall, find a family of hikers and get rescued. 
And so the last few minutes of the movie, in, in the grand style of movies based on, on real-life stories, shows us the real Aaron Ralston, who now is a one-armed guy with a wife and a kid, and continues to rappel down slopes and climb canyons. Right. He's so. now a combination motivational speaker and guy with one arm who climbs mountains. Right. Cutting off his arm was the best career movie ever made. <laughs> it certainly was. So um, let's talk about the framing really quick before we get into the hardcore sawin description. Um, sure. The, the, the movie starts off not in the canyon. It's such a claustrophobic movie that I feel like the entire thing is in the canyon, but there's actually a fairly lengthy intro, what, maybe 15 minutes or so? Yeah, I'd say 20 or 25, actually, where we see Aaron preparing for this hike in a very early morning. There's a very teasing shot where he's reaching up into an upper cabinet in his um, house looking for his good knife, and he can't quite get it. And so he just takes, like, a crappy uh, multi-tool that um, his mom gave him for Christmas one year. See, to me, that was really clunkety-clunk kind of foreshadowing, which I thought the script engaged in a little bit too much. It would always show him doing things with his right arm at the beginning, right? Right. I mean, I guess he's right-handed, but it just seemed like it was always foregrounding this thing that we know going in, which is that he's going to lose that arm. Right, and so I guess I would ask, does that count as foreshadowing? Like, it's not like it's telling us anything we don't know. Right, but then it's even less necessary, right? I mean, I feel like that the, the sense of dread that the guy's going to lose his arm would have been greater if we weren't constantly reminded there is his arm, the right one, reaching for a knife right. that he can't reach. <laughs> um, well, it's interesting. And the dread in the first 20 minutes isn't about, his, about him losing his arm. It's about, well, we know this catastrophe is coming. We know at some point he's going to slip. We know a boulder is going to land on top of him. And when is that coming? And we see him make all these small mistakes that he remembers later in the canyon. Right. Um, like not so, telling anyone where he's going, which is, of course, the big takeaway from the movie is leave a note, right? right Pick right. up the phone when your mom calls you the day before your right, big Answer your voicemails. Um, but so we, before he ends up stuck in that canyon, we do see him interacting with some other people, two uh, girls, two hikers who he runs into out in the, out in the national park. Um, who he basically shows a good time, and we're supposed to, we're meant, I think, to get a full dose of Aaron Ralston slash James Franco, because I mean, for the purposes of this movie, they seem almost identical to me. Sort of good-natured, slightly weird guys who um, who have a good heart, but who can be a little bit hard to take in in large doses. Um, and so he meets these two girls. He offers to take them on a trip through the canyon. And then he takes them to this seemingly amazing place where they uh, are stuck in a very, very tiny um, slot canyon, literally braced up against opposite walls with their back on one wall and their feet up against the other. And then Ralston shows them that if they simply let go and slide down the wall of the canyon, they will land in a beautiful um, subterranean pool underneath. Um, and it's a, a pretty great sequence um, a pretty enervating sequence, and it gives us one moment of him interacting with others before he bids them adieu, heads into the canyon, and ends up under a rock. Right. It also I hadn't thought about it till you described that scene, but it also creates the perfect foil for all that for that moment when he's crammed in a slot canyon, completely unable to move. Right. right I mean, it right. gives this this exact opposite with all this mobility and dynamism and freedom. Right, and needing water so badly, uh, as opposed to plunging into a beautiful to... backlit pool of it. Right. 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 Um, but so, I mean, obviously the the meat of the movie, as it were, is in, oh, yuck. Is in the – maybe I should never say that again. Um, obviously, the bleeding stump of the movie is <laughs> – no, no, no. Obviously, uh, the substantial part of the movie is in the canyon with, with Aaron Ralston, with James Franco. And you're right that in the end, that's what you're really left with because that's what – obviously what so much of the movie is. And so a lot of the movie depends on – 
Franco. Um, I mean, it depends on Danny Boyle to frame him interestingly and to keep the story moving along and to keep us excited about this movie even while we dread what's going to eventually happen. But in terms of who's on screen, it's Franco, Franco, Franco all the time. And so um, one thing that I really want to make clear is, is, at least from my standpoint, I thought that Franco's performance was really a terrific success, that he found different layers inside a guy who initially did not seem layered at all, who just seemed like a thrill seeker who sort of like, you know, attacks nature with all guns blazing. Um, He found a way into, he found depths inside a guy who at first seemed depthless and he found uh, pathos and a guy whose story we already know the end of. And I found that I found his performance really moving and really interesting. Completely agree. I mean, for me, there was a very deep divide, a canyon, if you will, between my impression of Boyle in this movie and my impression of Franco. I thought Franco's performance was really perfect. And he not only delivered everything you just said, but he did it with tons of humor and wit. Mm-hmm. And this was not at all sort of a, um, I mean, I say this with all love for Sean Penn in the right role, but it was not a Sean Penn style kind of look at me ache and suffer performance, which obviously if you're trapped in a canyon, and you're the only person on screen and it's all about, you know, pain and suffering and thinking you're going to die could very easily have been a bathetic performance. And I don't think it is that for a moment. Well, and I mean, that's a tribute in a way too to the actual Aaron Ralston. I mean, the, the detail in this movie of of Franco's character having a video camera and shooting sort of narrative updates on what's going on in his plight as he goes along through the five days that he's stuck there is real. Aaron Ralston had a video camera. He shot updates on his plight. He shot goodbye messages to his family when he was pretty sure he was going to die. Did he really do anything like that, uh, that fake TV show interview of himself that that happens at one point in this movie, which I thought was uh, kind of a I don't know the answer to that, but it seems based on Ralston's personality, it seems totally plausible. Did you read Ralston's book? I'm curious to read no, it now. No, I haven't read he it. He wrote a book called Between a Rock and a Hard Place, which right. in itself is a very funny title for such a horrifying experience. And right. I, I sort of want to read it now after this. Um, but I mean, but it is, it's a tribute to both of them, I think, that I think they both have always been able to find the humor in the circumstance. And, and in this movie, Boyle and Simon Beaufoy, who wrote the script, and Franco do find ways to keep the character engaging even in the direst of straits and uh and i mean it really that his he really really works but it's interesting that you mentioned sean penn um and this can maybe be in a way into us talking about what you didn't like about danny boyle's direction and what i did like but i also want to think about a little bit the difference between this movie and another guy lost alone in nature movie into which the sean wild penn directed right. right into the wild and I was really struck by the difference in these two movies' attitude towards, like, the natural world. Like, Into the Wild, um, Chris uh, McCandless, uh, the, character, uh, the main character in that movie, treats nature with, like, with utter reverence and awe and respect and views nature as this, like, uh, mysterious force that he can never fully understand and grasp. And, and despite that, he ends up dead. Um, well, in a way, because of that, right? Because yeah, his reverence because for nature is such that he doesn't take pragmatic steps like bringing a map to where he's going. Right. And so Aaron Ralston sort of views, though he is similarly careless at times, he views nature entirely differently. And this movie particularly, Danny Boyle particularly, views nature very differently than Sean Penn and Chris McCandless do in Into the Wild, which is that they clearly view nature as something to be conquered. 
right? You whether by your four wheel drive or by your bike or by wearing headphones, blasting loud rock music as you hike through a canyon, or by your expert know how, or in the end by your grit and willingness to cut off your own damn arm to get out. Um, and it was just very striking to me the di- as Sean Penn would have given a very different performance in this role, obviously, I think a far inferior performance. So he would have directed this movie very differently. And I'm interested to hear if you would rather have had that kind of direction. Interesting. I thought of Into the Wild during this. And, and actually, there were moments where I was asking myself as a way of distracting myself from the horror of contemplating arm sawing. I was thinking, <laughs> do I like this movie better or worse than Into the Wild? I don't love either movie. I think they're both sort of engaging on their own terms. And I enjoyed them while they were in them and admired things about them. But neither of them really worked for me. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I don't know which of those two I like better. But I can think of another movie about a real-life adventurer that I think is superior to both movies. And that this movie, at times, I think was trying to go for something like it, which was Touching the Void. Did you see Touching the Void? No, I haven't seen Touching the Void. See, Touching the Void, which is also based on the real story of a mountaineer who was stuck in a horrible situation and got himself out of it, is, I think, a beautiful work of art, a really great movie, and has a completely different aesthetic uh, approach than than either of the other two we're just talking about. It's really quiet and still. It takes place, actually, in the snow and ice, and so it's a really different setting. But it's it's a much more um, introspective and contemplative movie. And there's one moment at the end of Touching the Void when pop music is used. You know, Danny Boyle loves to use pop music and crams it into every corner of his soundtrack. And he has really great taste in music, and it's a fun soundtrack I wouldn't mind listening to on its own. But to me, it made this movie feel overly crammed and that there wasn't really any moment that we experience the silence and the fear that he must have experienced in that cavern. And Touching the Void is just full of silence. And then at the end, there's this moment where this Boney M song, the the European disco group, (laughs) gets stuck in the guy's head. He's kind of hallucinating, and he starts hallucinating this song, Brown Girl in the Ring by Boney M. And to this day, whenever I even think of that song or the name of that band, I think of that moment in that movie and how powerful it was. You know, this weird moment of pop culture blasting through his head as a hallucination. And I feel like Danny Boyle didn't allow any space for something like that to happen. I'm not saying, you know, he needs to remake Touching the Void frame for frame, but I, I just didn't feel like there was any moment when we could be surprised by a burst of sound or a, 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 an image in that way because he was constantly throwing stuff at us. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, Boyle has said in interviews that he had trouble convincing Ralston to let him make the movie at first because he thinks that Aaron Ralston really viewed the movie that would be made out of the story as basically touching the void. Um, so he didn't. He set out to not make touching. The he void. set out to not make touching the void, and he had to convince Ralston that that was fine. I, mean, I assume he convinced him with a gigantic pile of money. Um, <laughs> But but that is interesting, and you're right that there. I mean, I haven't seen Touching the Void, but I know something about its aesthetic, and and also from what you described, it's a, they are very different kinds of movies. But I would say that I didn't I didn't have any problem feeling surprised throughout this movie, and I didn't have any problem getting inside uh, Aaron Ralston's head, and and the busyness didn't bother me in the same way that it bothered you, and partially it's because I do remember at least in the initial moments of him falling down in that canyon us getting brief moments of silence and terror that for me then lasted the, basically the entire rest of the movie and it's not so hard for me to imagine being scared in that situation it's not so hard for me to put myself in James Franco's shoes and Aaron Ralston's shoes um, and so and so I feel like what for, what Danny Boyle's busyness did a much better job of than a movie like Touching the Void could ever have done is convincing me of the much harder thing to understand which is how do you get from just feeling afraid and alone to chopping your own damn arm right well okay so we've talked ourselves into a corner and i think we now have to discuss arm chops oh yeah it's awesome right (laughs) 
<laughs> so yeah, I want to I want to hear about for one thing your, your the audience's reaction when you saw the movie, your own reaction, and just how you think that that scene is handled or scenes. I mean, it's sort of a, a series of of scenes by which he gets to the point of saw saw. Right. Uh, everyone in my audience fainted and six guys died. <laughs> I threw up so much that no, no, uh, it was fine. You know, there was, I mean, there was a great deal of tension in the audience and a lot of shrieking. Um, and, and it's a very, very intense scene, obviously. Um, I didn't end up watching it through my fingers, much to my surprise. I watched the whole thing. Um, and I found it pretty amazing. I mean, as a piece of technical craftsmanship, not just the actual arm sawing, but yes, the propulsion of the movie that allows us to go along with Ralston as he makes these decisions, as he realizes the steps he'll have to take to saw his own arm off, steps I certainly never really thought about before. Yeah, well, here's since we're spoiling, we might as well, we haven't spoiled anything yet because everybody knows he saws his arm off, but I didn't want to give this away in my review, which is sort of how he does it. Right. And I think to me the most sickening moment in the entire movie is when he breaks his own arm because he realizes, he he realizes earlier that he can't get through the bone and that's done in a very economical way. There's just a moment that he's basically sort of feeling around in his shallow cut in his arm to figure out how he would go about such a thing. Right. And, uh, And you hear him just say, bone. And he just realizes there's no way that this utility knife is cutting through human bone. And so there's never a moment that he says, I'm going to break my bone. But then you realize that he's going to do it. And that moment to me, maybe because I've actually broken my arm Mm -hmm. and heard a sound, a similar sound, but that moment may have been harder than any of the gory sawing that followed. Just the idea of wedging your own bone. That's absolutely the most intense moment in the movie. And it's amazing. And it's the way Boyle handles it is through... Yes, as you say, setting up the seed in our head earlier in the movie, we're going that he's going to need to break that to break that arm somehow or deal with the bone problem somehow, and so all of a sudden, in, at after he's sort of gone through this peak of delirium and after he gets the movie posits a glimpse of his own future, his own future son. Um, to sort of propel him into what he needs to do. That's funny. I, I thought of that as his childhood self. I keep reading in reviews now that it's his son, and it makes sense that it's his future son, but I thought it was an inner child deal where he was, like, dancing with himself, which struck me as a little touchy-feely. So I, I mean, they're both pretty touchy-feely, but I have a little more sympathy for future son than dancing with myself. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, but so, and then it very, Boyle very clearly sets up in a couple of very economical shots what the physics of it are, that he's braced himself in a certain way, that he's like gritting his teeth and preparing for what he has to do. He launches into it. We get a shot, uh, basically an x-ray shot inside the arm of the arm bones bending. Yes, yeah, CSI naturally. style. And then we get this tremendous crack. Uh, it's uh, almost like a series of cracks. Yes, ah. well, I mean, he had to break both. I mean, there's two. Radius two, and ulna, yeah. right. Yes, so there's two cracks. Um, and it's super intense and pretty amazing. Uh, and and it's like once he gets past that as an audience member, you feel like, oh, my God, this guy can do anything. Sure, he can saw his arm off. I don't know. I still had a, had a hard time with the sawing after that. And you're going to have to tell me a little bit about how that scene was shot because I was sort of watching it through my hands. And right. that's a moment when I admired. I mean, there are plenty of moments in the movie when I admired what Danny Boyle could do. And that was one of them. You know, I mean, I think he 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 really thought about how to make that scene as tense and as intense as possible. And and it worked. Right. But while not making it so horrible that it's literally unwatchable. I don't know. I thought it, I thought it bordered on that. But but, you know, maybe yeah, that was it what does it was border. For. I agree with you that it borders on that. But I think it's for most 
most audiences, it's not entirely unwatchable. You may watch it through your fingers. You may watch it primarily by just listening to the sound, in which case he has you taken care of because sound does a lot of the work in mm-hmm. that scene. But you will. But most people will not have to com- like completely shut down at right. that point in the movie. They won't have to run out of the theater. They won't have to duck under their seat. They will be able to experience it in some way, and it's going to have a real effect on Here's people. a question because it was hard for me to tell the duration. How long do you think that scene lasted? About two or three minutes? Maybe two minutes, yeah. I, I mean, after the arm breaking, the actual cutting, I would say, was two minutes max. And it's very, I mean, it's so it's dealt with through very quick cuts. Um, We, I mean, obviously we see the knife going into the skin and we see him sawing through stuff, but a lot more often it focuses on his face as he is working through his way through things. There's a moment in which he hits some kind of nerve cluster or tendon or something that's very hard for him to get through. And that's dealt with through sort of almost like a shriek of violins. Mm -hmm. And so you realize as that scene goes on that the, we're, that, we see what we see, but we feel what we feel because of the sound design in that scene. Right, which is sound like covering your eyes pain. doesn't really work for that reason. Right. right, sound represents pain, and so you're still going to be pretty affected by that scene, even if you're not watching, because the sound makes very clear what he's feeling. Um, and he works his way through whatever that is that he's trying to cut, and he makes a couple of final cuts and gets and gets out. And it really probably is no more than maybe even a minute and a half. It's very short and very intense. Um, which is certainly less time than it took in real life, thank God. Um, but is the clearly the right amount of time for the movie because by the end of it, I, was, I you're so wound up, and then he sort of stumbles away and looks down and he can't believe what he did. Um, and that is again another moment where I where I did feel like we got a little bit of the silence and the awe of what has just happened. But then he does this thing, which is very in character for him. It's sort of absurd, and I wonder if Ralston really did this, which is that he takes a picture of the arm wedged in the rock before <laughs> right. he disappears down the canyon, which sort of goes with the self-documenting you know, trickster that we've seen up until then. But it also argues against him having been profoundly spiritually changed by the experience. <laughs> right, <way>. right. <laughs> Then after that, I just have to say, as long as we're spoiling, that the last, the end of the movie was such a release of tension. It's a strange structure for a movie. I, I, I think it works for the weird kind of movie this is, but it's sort of odd because in a regular horror movie or suspense movie, there would be one more beat after that, right? right. And there's not in this movie. Basically, it's there's, there seems to be very little movie after that. Yes, he repels down the canyon, but that's treated very quickly as if it's sort of like, hey, now that I've cut off my own arm, repel, schmapel, right? Right, right. And, uh, and gets picked up by these people and airlifted away. And there's just this pure release of tension. I mean, I feel like I was just a wet noodle in my seat just thinking, like, he's safe. Nothing more is going to happen to him now. Right. You know, and please don't make the helicopter almost crash or some bullshit. And, and, and Danny Boyle didn't, which I, which I respect. I, wish, I sort of wish the movie had ended with the scene of Danny Boyle handing Aaron Ralston a pile of money. <laughs> like, into, his, into his one good arm. Right. Like, all right, you made it, kid. Here's your award. <laughs> But yes, you're right. I mean, and so the structure of the movie is one of the things I really liked about the movie structure is is the placement of the title, in fact. Uh, and this is a tiny bit of a spoiler, but I, one of the things I really loved was we get like sort of that 20 or 25 minutes of Aaron Ralston in his element, flirting with those girls, hiking around the canyon, biking, listening to loud music. Uh, and then he hits the the rock and he falls down in the canyon. The rock lands on top of him, and it's in that moment of silence where he's looking at his arm like, holy shit, what just happened? That's when the title flashes up on the screen, 127 right. hours. Maybe that's why it feels to me like that's the whole movie, and the beginning feels so almost like it was a trailer that I saw before going in or something, because right. that's when the real intensity and engagement with the movie begins. Right. Dan, I'm so glad to have you back on the spoiler train. We haven't done one of these in a couple months, and I've really missed it. Uh, I'm happy to be back, and this is certainly a very interesting movie to talk about. 
and uh, I'm really interested to see how it does. I think whether it is a gigantic hit or not a gigantic hit, it, I do really think it makes James Franco a movie star, and I think it's up to him now what he wants to do with that. He's still going to keep doing weird movies and conceptual art projects and stuff, and so it may not it may not matter that he's a movie star, but at least for the next few months, he's going to have to be a movie star. Definitely agree it's going to be a turning point in his career. I wouldn't be surprised to see him being nominated for and possibly winning some awards during award season for it. Yes. And I think it'll be interesting to see what all the people who loved Slumdog Millionaire make of this movie, because it's so the opposite, you know, effective tonality <laughs> that it leaves you with. Yes. All right. Well, um, Dan, please join me again for another spoiler special. Thanks, Dana. Our producer is Krishnan Vasudevan. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.